Welcome, everybody, to the Ideology Podcast. I am here with Drew Stedman. My name is Mick Murray. We have AJ Cooley in the room who is doing all things technical on our behalf, which is fantastic because really is. Uh, we would be lost. Drew. Thanks, AJ. Um, we, we are starting a new series. Uh, Drew gave the kind of PSA last episode talking about how this season, season four of Ideology, we are not fully committed to a weekly podcast. Rather, we're trying to tackle some key themes that have emerged in this podcast over the years. Uh, we started looking at secularism uh, in contrast to our uh, Judeo-Christian belief systems and uh, did, what, five or six weeks on on that contrast and looked at how can we be a vibrant church in the midst of a secular culture and looking at the ideas that are influencing our formation as followers of Jesus. And uh, now we're, we're pivoting into a series on personhood, which is a theme from our last season. And you can go back and listen to some of those early conversations uh, looking at uh, Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, and she dives into personhood more at kind of an applied um, level. Of course, she does go into some of the theory, but uh, she's looking at how modern personhood theory kind of plays out at the level of uh, from abortion to euthanasia and so on and so forth uh, to tra transgenderism. And, and again, you can go back. I think we did a couple episodes on her book, uh, but we wanted to dive a little deeper and uh, unpack this over the course of some number of episodes. A lot of rabbit trails we could go down in this regard. Um, and it, it might seem, I think when I first started hearing this concept, this idea of personhood theory, uh, I think to someone who hadn't thought deeply about it before, it was kind of baffling that this is even a conversation. Uh, this is one of those things that's just intuitive. Like we live as persons from our first person experience and have this kind of deep intuition of what it means to be a person. And yet when you really kind of sit down and try to uh, define what is consciousness and what separates mankind from the animal kingdom and, uh, and even from a Christian perspective, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? These become difficult uh, concepts to pin down, to define. It's kind of like the proverbial trying to you know pin jello to the wall. It just keeps, or you know, the harder you you try to grip it or grasp onto it, it's like sand. It kind of slips through your fingers. And yet, um, that we do have a solid foundation within the Christian tradition as to what it means to be persons. Um, but uh, this is an age-old question: uh, what is what does it mean to be human? What makes us distinct? Are we exceptional? and so on and so forth. And I know you're going to dive in here in a second, Drew, but even connecting this back to our last series, we looked at you know that T-chart that comparing and contrasting the secular worldview with the Judeo-Christian worldview or belief systems. And you know, kind of going downstream from our cosmology, if we look at the, the source of all things, where do we come from within the secular world, an atheistic frame would suggest that we are the product of time, chance, and chemistry. Whether that time, chance, and chemistry happened here on Earth, I just watched those, Drew and I were talking about before this, uh, we started recording, but I, I follow this really esoteric, uh, like Eastern European podcast, or it might, might be German, but <laughs> anyway, he was, this, this guy was uh, just, he was looking at uh, origin of life theories and one of the more, well, actually it's still somewhat fringe. It's highly speculative, but one of the ones that's floating around in scientific circles right now is that actually the ingredients for life originated in kind of the primordial universe uh, within this range of a few dozen millions of years uh, after the Big Bang when the um, the universe itself was uh, habitable for life in that the the gradient of temperatures ranged from zero to 100 degrees Celsius before the universe cooled. And now you only have, you know, planets and these kind of very small pockets where life would be feasible according to our modern understanding of life. <laughs> anyway, all that to say, uh, the one of the theories is that life originated, you know, tens of or 10 billion years ago and has just kind of been... Um, waiting to germinate these different places like Earth because 
the origin of life seemed to happen too quickly for the math to make sense for us to just spontaneously come into existence, crossing all the necessary complexity barriers, etc. And so if you look at secular cosmology, that we are just a mathematical improbability, um, that has massive implications for what it means to be human, uh, that you know, we are just another branch of the tree of life, a highly evolved form of a, a you know, of a mammal that has gained self-consciousness and in whatever that entails. Uh, rather, from the Christian uh, perspective, we are the product of an intelligent mind. We're the design of a will. And of course, we talked about this, you know, this is not an apologetic. Um, I would argue that 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 Christian understanding of cosmology and anthropology is more in line with what we observe in the real world and makes the most sense. And yet it requires faith. Both, both cosmologies, both uh, belief systems require faith. Uh, but I digress. Today we're talking about personhood theory, kind of setting up this, um, this series, Drew. These are baffling questions. So tell us a little bit more about where we're going in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it well, Mick, but when I analyze secularism in the world today and the, and the traditional Christian belief, this is where I see the greatest divergence. There are some critical assumptions beneath both of these two that send us in, in very different directions based on how we answer a few of these questions. However, today, as I'm going to sketch out for us, even within a Christian um, frame or a, a secular belief system, there are a variety of different proposals that, you know, even within those belief systems are pretty distinct from each other. And so you, what you come up with, I think, is a list of some rather large questions. You could answer them um, secularly, you could answer them religiously, you could answer them, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go down that line. But fundamentally, who are we? And, you know, I, if I had to pick, I, I think that might be perhaps the most um, dominant question in our culture that people grapple with. Who are we? As, as humans and our humans persons, what is a person? Where does a person come from? All of that. So today for episode one of this series, main goal is to sketch the questions, the problems, just what, what's the terrain, the lay of the land? What do we need to answer? At the end, I'm going to give a, a teaser definition for a way of understanding this that we can unpack in the future. So we'll start off. You, you got us going down this train, but in the secular world, you know, I, I think we start with, are we animals? You know, is there anything different between me and a chimpanzee? You know, besides a higher level of evolution that leads to either reason, greater reason, or relationality. Um, there's some interesting research about one of the things, you know, I think we like to associate our greatness as humanity with our brains and how smart we are. Um, there's a lot of good research out there that's talking more about language and the ability to transmit generational knowledge through language. And so if you could kind of go back to early humans, whatever that means, um, their combined intellect is passed down generationally. And so the vast majority of things that we would look at as our superior intelligence are actually linguistic and cultural products that have been passed down generationally. If we didn't have that, if it was just me living in a forest, uh, would I be that much more advanced than a chimpanzee? Maybe, maybe not. And so you have that. That's, that's all going on in the secular world. Now, if we want to take the position that we are more than animals in a secular belief system, then we have to come up with some method for explaining that. Mm -hmm. um, emergence theory is probably the best one where you, you have these um, evolutionary stages that then transcend themselves and something new emerges, and that can be a pretty radical jump. So you transcend what was. So you have a primordial soup that turns into some organism, which turns into something. And there are these theories of emergence where it all kind of combines together and you shoot up. So, you know, maybe there's something else out there, but you have to come up with some kind of theory for how you got there. Within that, then that's kind of more maybe a, a metaphysical or ontological question. Now you have to turn over and ask questions of meaning. So if that's all the case, do we make our own meaning? And do we establish our own identity? So that's kind of the realm of existentialism or hyper-individualism, which are, are similar um, you know, and, and we could even be agnostic about our origins. You know, if you're secular, you don't have to make any kind of decision. You could just say, I don't know. I don't know about our origins or, you know, from a biological standpoint, how we can understand ourselves. But what I can do is more of a future oriented, a question of telos. You know, I can make meaning for myself. YOLO, you know, you only live once. Like I can, I can, I can do all of that and, and become someone. 
Now, on the other side of that, then you have questions of culture. You know, can you? Is your understanding of that really just a cultural product? And I'll get into that in a minute. Okay, so that's all just within the secular belief system. Mm -hmm. So some pretty large questions. Mm -hmm. On the Christian side, maybe we all can say we agree that we're formed in the image of God. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Orthodox Christian. So I'm not referring to um, Christian terminology that's kind of past Christian doctrine. But what does it mean to be formed in the image of God? Uh, early on, rationality was considered, and so that was a lot of what people would say, is that we can act as our own moral agents with reason, creative power, re- relationality, that's where it went next, and so we live in conscious relationship in a way that no animals do, and so that's what it means to be formed in God's image. Linguistically and emotively and... Yeah. All those different yeah. things, like we're reflecting God through that. <clears throat> Uh, a more recent one is vocation. So you're actually not looking at our faculties, whether it's our intellect or our reason, but it's actually our vocation to be stewards of the earth. And so that's what it means to be in God's image is he's given us an assignment and we're stewarding his authority. I, I prefer Roger Olson's definition is that the Imago Dei is not any of those. Instead, rather, it's simply our personhood and our personhood includes those, um, but is not limited to those. Mm-hmm. So another way of, of saying that would be what it means to be in God's image is that God himself is divine persons. We are human persons in that image. And these are all parts of it, but it simply means that to be a person is to be in the image of God who is divine persons. So you could enumerate several of those things, but at the end of the day, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That's what I hear you saying. That there's, this, there's an essential nature that might not even, it might defy explanation or definition, could be described, mm-hmm. but... In the same way that if I've never eaten a banana before, you can describe to me qualities of what a banana might taste like, but I can't fully formulate until I eat the banana what a banana. <laughs> this is this is an amazing metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's an essential nature that has yeah. to be experienced uh, in in a first person experience or in relationship with God that can't be quantified or enumerated in that way. Yeah, I might even look at it as far as how we get to a definition. So do I look at an attribute of myself that then defines what it means to be in God's image, or do I look at God to define what it means to be in God's Mm -hmm. image? So I think what Olson is suggesting here is we don't look inward at an exceptional capacity that we have, even a biblical capacity that's discussed in Scripture where we base our definition off of something like that, but instead we look upward at, at God and who God is and then our personhood is derived from God's personhood. And mm-hmm. so it includes all those things, but is not limited to those things. And yes, maybe the banana would fit into that. <laughs> I, I could pinpoint attributes, you know, of it's soft, it's sweet, you know, it's yellow. But those things can't be used um, to, to make some kind of formal statement, right. you know, fully. Um, they're parts of it, but they're not the whole of it. Yeah. So yeah, I think some one direction this is inevitably going to go and and I know this just by looking ahead at the notes, but in conversations about personhood, um, there's there's an ancient conversation about dualism, you know, or even kind of a tripartite understanding of what it means to be a person that we aren't just you know kind of wet machinery. We're not just bodies. Uh, I was actually listening to a podcast recently that was referring to another podcast that was talking about you know Platonic forms and. And then uh, Aristotle comes along and says, well, no, it's more about kind of the, the essential nature being the soul, this concept of the Hebrew nephesh or the Greek psyche. Um, so where does that play into this conversation? The What constitutes being a person? You're hitting one of what I consider to be three especially large elements of this personhood conversation. And that is the question of embodiment. And, and I'll get into this. I'll break it down here in a second. But what is the link between personhood and our bodies? So that's the first. Um, Just so everyone knows where we're going. Second is determinism. And so how much control do we actually have over ourselves? And then the third is the role of culture. Um, To what extent is our personhood a social product? So these are three things. What I find interesting about them on all three of these, we don't even have to leave Orthodox Christianity to see significant debate. Mm -hmm. So yes, secularism has its own variations. And what I'll try to do is highlight examples on both sides, um, at least on some of these. But even within Christianity, with Orthodox uh, Christians who are operating within the Christian tradition, there is dispute and debate about how to understand these things. So um, I'll I'll start with this embodiment question. Dualism is the idea that we have a soul and a spirit and we have a body. So soul and spirit could be synonymous. They could be, um, as you said, this 
kind of tripart element of what it means. But the essential message is that I'm comprised of a few different parts, and these parts are related to each other, but they're separate. They're, they're distinct from each other in a significant way. And normally how this is represented with Christian thinkers would be that the soul or the spirit is primary, like that's the essence of who I am. And then my body is secondary or even accidental. And so within this, what, what tends to happen is I can have this orientation towards things as spiritual of being good or better. And by spiritual, I mean things that are not embodied. And the, the salvation message here ultimately gets into a form of heaven in which I'm this kind of indistinct spirit that loses its bodily state and ascends up into heaven. And so there's a transformation of my spirit, but that's not always reflected in the full transformation of my body. Now within this, there is a, if you're an astute um, learner of heresy, you're gonna notice that you can drift into the, probably the most significant first heresy that faced the church is Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had a pretty extreme form of soul-body dualism. So what it said is that matter is necessarily evil and irrelevant. So matter would include my body. And the upshot of that is what goes on in my body doesn't really matter. Now, some people can go to this very radical form where they deny themselves everything, you know, where it truly don't take care of their bodies. They don't have any pleasure, anything like that. But where most people went was the other end of that spectrum of what I do in my body doesn't matter. So they would use that as a license for all kind of sinful behavior with their sexuality or other appetites where my body doesn't matter. You know, what matters is my spirit. And so my spirit's united with Christ. My body is just is what it is. Feed the body on earth and don't worry about it too much. That, that's where you can be um, in danger of drifting towards. And, I, and I've seen even today, you know, I've heard some stuff that I think is starting to go that direction, you know, kind of this mystical interior soul that's distinct from the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I see echoes of dualism, though probably not with the same philosophical grounding, um, echoes of dualism in some of the existential conversation that goes on, a lot of it around gender where there's kind of this internal essence of me that can't be seen, it's not reflected in my physical body, but I'm able to align my physical body with this mysterious internal thing, or maybe not align it, maybe just kind of live in this space where there's a separation between the body that I inhabit Mm -hmm. and this inner spirit of who I think that I am. And so ironically, you know, to me, because it doesn't have any of the religious background or the acknowledgement of a spiritual world even, um, but it can embrace this, this dualistic mentality. And I would see that in a lot of radical gender ideology, especially in the trans movement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, this is an interesting conversation and uh, my understanding of the Jewish viewpoint that, that probably Jesus uh, had as well as the disciples was far more integrated than mm-hmm. we and I and I know you're going to get to this in a moment, but that the idea is not that we are bodies that possess a soul, as if the body is some kind of case casing for this immaterial part of who we are, but we are a soul. That the human is both body and soul. Uh, in some in some mysterious way that you know Jesus is both God and man and God is three in one that we are immaterial and material and meshed into one that cannot be uh, so neatly dissected as we uh, often do in the West uh, as kind of an aside but I was doing a thought experiment with my kids uh, not too too long ago and we were talking about uh, how much of the body could you get rid of before you're no longer you. <laughs> um, so like it's a great analytic you know, quadruple question. amputee, yeah. you know, heart transplant, liver, kidney transplant, you know, so, uh, and, and I read something somewhere, I can't corroborate this on the fly, but that even the atoms that make up our body are recycled every seven years. Mm-hmm. So like everything that is concretely you right now is new within the last seven years, but somehow there's this continuity that you have retained your you-ness even though the actual building blocks are completely recycled from, you know, this part of this table in front of us could be part of me in seven years. And yet the me-ness about me is independent of this table. And yet it, the physic, my physicality is an, is an integral part of who I am in some mysterious way. Yeah, that's a, a kind of a raging philosophical um, topic right now is that continuity, you know, how do you account for that? What is that? And it's interesting, you know, because it does raise a ton of questions. But embodiment, it's a big deal. And I agree with you, Mick. I think this does better justice to the biblical witness. 
and that is that our, our soul describes the totality of our personhood, which is necessarily embodied. So what I'm not able to do is separate out my soul from the fact that God put me in a body. Now, what the flip side of that is what this isn't saying is that all I am is a body to mm-hmm. where it's just the the matter and the electrical impulses of my brain that make me me. I am inherently spiritual. I'm created in the image of God, but that creation put me in this body. Where we see this focus, you know, even in the Christian perspective, would be that our future is a resurrection into a new body. Mm-hmm. So I'm not becoming a disembodied soul that floats on the clouds. I'm actually being given a new body. And so when Christ was resurrected, he walked around in a new body. He ate fish. He walked through walls too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But he ate fish. You know, he he allowed somebody to stick their hands in his nail holes. Like there's there is this embodied element of it, even in the new creation, in the new Adam and the paradigm for what is to come is embodied. And so mm-hmm. it's concrete. That does not make it any less spiritual, but it is, you use the word integration. And I think that is the right word for it. Yeah. Now, just like Gnosticism can go too far, you know, or that first dualistic view can turn it into Gnosticism. I think we have to be careful on embodiment. We can go so far as to saying we are victims of our bodies. And so where I see this today would be where people take elements of their embodiment and they turn them as identity markers. And so, you know, I could say that it's um, just there's something hereditary in me that gives me an impulse to anger. And so therefore, this is a necessary part of my embodiment. It is who I am that becomes an identity element, and it is, can be used over time to justify all sorts of sin. So there are dangers on either side of this one. Um, it is an ongoing debate. I have, I'm friends with people who are Christian philosophers that really love the Lord, that are you know, diehard dualists, and so that's still part of it. A lot of the tradition in Christianity mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the historic theologians of the church would have been dualist. I think biblically it leans more towards embodiment, but uh, it's a, it's an interesting conversation, interesting question that does have ramifications for us. Yeah, so that's one of the first big questions that that will characterize this conversation. The next being determinism. And this is a this is a big one, a sticky one. And I was even thinking of I can't remember the year, but in not too distant history, the uh, you know the famous Stephen Hawking, uh, theoretical physicist, uh, pioneering in black holes and Hawking radiation, and he made this kind of shocking statement not too long before his death that the material world is one hundred percent deterministic. And essentially, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it said that uh, essentially philosophy is dead. Uh, there's no use, uh, you know, thinking about pontificating about uh, meaning, reason, anything else. That if we had enough computing power and could chart the spin and course of every lepton and quark and everything else, we are entirely deterministic. And that's in the secular, purely mm-hmm. rationally theistic world. Um, and, uh, and I know there might be a counterpart, you know, to that thinking in the Christian world as well, this, you know, highly deterministic, um, large view of the sovereignty of God and so on and so forth. So just start to untangle that a little bit for us. Yeah. I love the irony of somebody making a philosophical statement that philosophy is dead, you know, and that's so much of this does turn into circular reasoning in the end. So yeah, there is a a form of secular determinism and a form of Christian determinism, and then there is a form of secular indeterminism and a Christian form of secular indeterminism. We're not going to get into other belief systems or religions. So the secular one, you you handled it well, Mick. Basically, the, the universe is a giant robot with moving parts, and the issue for us is we just don't have powerful enough computers to map it all out. But if we did, we'd know everything. We can map everything out, including our own actions, future actions, the actions of our children on down the line. We could we could see the entirety of the future if we had computing power enough. Right. And that goes back to like the inability to account for a soul. So why would we be independent beings? What is a human other than just, again, wet machinery? And if we are here by the product of time, chance, and chemistry, then we are the continuing echoes of blind... Uh, physical forces that uh, that can't give rise to consciousness as we understand it. Um, so it can only be explained by scientific processes. That's kind of the, as yeah. I understand it from a very layman's uh, perspective, that's the argument there. 
Correct. And so, you know, in other words, I feel like I have agency. I feel like I'm making good decisions, but in reality, I'm not doing anything. These are the products of physical forces that are outside of my control. Um, one significant upshot to that is it really does away with the concept of morality, because then if you think about it and play that out long enough, then what I consider to be moral behavior is actually inevitable. I was going to do it anyway. And so what right do I have to say if I'm following a moral script that I cannot control? then how do I impose that on anyone else or adhere to that in any kind of way? There is a Christian variation of this that you know doesn't see it quite the same way, but essentially what it's saying is that everything is scripted by God in advance. It, you know, On a street level, I would refer to this as hyper-Calvinism. So not Calvinism in general, and I'm going to get into a softer form of determinism. So this would be labeled strict determinism. Soft determinism is looking at dual agency. Um, and we'll get there in a second. But in this one, we have no control. We are, it, it's actually the same as the secular variation of it. Um, rather than viewing it as a matter of material um, power, we're looking at it as God's decree. He has ordained everything that's going to happen, including my behavior. Some of us have been ordained as agents of wrath, where God demonstrates his wrath on sin, others as agents of grace. But ultimately, it's not our choices, it's something that God himself chooses to do. Now, you'd be hard pressed to find theologians that would advocate for strict determinism. And even though I am not a, um, a Calvinist or a five-point Calvinist, um, the, I, I think we have to be careful that the vast majority of good scholars would not advocate this form of determinism. But there are people who, who do see it this way. Now, a softer form of determinism, and this would be the majority of Reformed theology, um, I, I think of people like Jonathan Edwards as a great example of this. What it is looking at is saying that we actually do have agency and we do have freedom but ultimately, it's been assigned by God in advance. Um, Kevin Van Hooser, a, a Reformed theologian, he uses the metaphor of authorship. And he, he looks at, think of like, Mick, if you were a character, as an author, I assign you attributes. But then what happens is the rest of the story is exploring your use of those attributes. So I could do it where I just dictate everything in advance and I give you no control, or I could assign you the attributes and then let the story play out. And I am sitting outside, I'm not engaging this story, but you are living according to the, the attributes that have been assigned to you to where I know what's going to happen exactly because I was the one who assigned you the attributes in the first place. But from your perspective, you are living according to those attributes. So you're still making decisions on your own, of your own free will, but it's according to the plot that I've laid out. And, and that would be some variation of that is most of Reformed theology. Now, what that means is that your choices still do matter. You still are exercising your agency and your will, but you're following a plot that's been laid out for you. And it's not a conflict because you're the one doing all the action. You're the one making all the decisions. You're the one sinning. You know, you're the one responding to the call of grace, but it is in response to what has been put in you and the work of God that's been assigned to you. So I, I you know, I think within that one, um, I think there are ways where you can um, get to the point where you can kind of handle both human agency and God's sovereignty. I, I think it does raise a question that a Reformed theologian has to deal with of the problem of evil, and does this make God the author of evil in the end? And of course, they would answer resoundingly no, um, but you have to kind of work through it and see, mm -hmm. you know, do you agree with that? Do you, do you really think they're able to answer that satisfactorily? Now let's move in. So that's determinism, and there are Christian and secular views of it. Indeterminism is essentially what it's saying is, is that you do have agency and there is meaningful change that looks different or you're actually changing the future in some way. Secular, I would even say, you know, we could have some scientists or secular philosophers weigh in on this one, but quantum theory really opens the door to this and quantum indeterminacy. That's, that's what's interesting to me about Stephen Hawking is he's making a really big assumption there because right. our best modern science is that, you know, that, that the quantum state is indeterminate. Like, right. You know, you, it's um, Schroeder's cat, right? You know, it's like that whole thing of um, even at the base physical level, there is not all prescripted in that way. There is this chaos and chance that dictates the future. And so you can work your way up into humanity. But at the very least, we have evidence in the physical world that things are not scripted as totally as we mm -hmm. might think they are. Now, Hawking or others might make the assumption that they actually are, and it's just an issue of we don't understand it yet, but it all is. But make no mistake, that is a metaphysical philosophical statement, not a scientific statement. 
And I, I don't see any way that that's ever resolved, um, for, at least from the human vantage yeah. point. Yeah, even Einstein recoiled at the idea of Schrodinger, you know, um, the, he, his famous quote, Einstein, God does not play dice um, in this, this idea of indeterminacy um, based on completely random quantum fluctuations. Uh, it's a very unsettling thing to, to grapple with as a physicist, I'm sure. Correct. And, and so, you know, for the Christian, it raises a few questions of, does God have control over the future if it is indeterminate? And um, what is the role of our agency in God's plan? So the, you know, another early he- uh, heresy is um, Plagius, who was arguing with Augustine, and his whole idea is that Jesus is a perfect moral agent who set the example for us, but that we have to take control and act morally so that we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. So what he's saying is that we have the ability within ourselves to live the Christian life apart from some type of intervention of grace. Mm-hmm. So if you have this kind of strict determinacy where God has to, or in, yeah, determinate view where God has to break in and he kind of assigns you grace, it's a free gift that transforms you, you know, the other end of that spectrum would be that you have to make your own meaning and it's in the image of Christ, he's the example to you, but there's no change that occurs within you. You are capable of overcoming the obstacles that you face. Mm-hmm. Now, this would continue to be huge in, um, you know, process theology for sure, um, all forms of liberal theology, you know, they're going to... Open theism. Yeah, open theism is an interesting case study. I don't know that they go quite this far, but um, they, they still would put more of an emphasis on on the fact that um, you have to make choices mm-hmm. and those choices dictate the future. Um, an open theist might understand that God in his infinite foreknowledge sees all outcomes and he can guarantee the future in the end because of his power and his authority, but you're exercising real agency. So the future is open in that sense but ultimately it's going to be reconciled by God. Some of these other systems, God actually doesn't have power over the future. Mm -hmm. So in process theology, God has influence, but not power. So God can't actually control the outcome in the end, and it's left open. And liberal theology, you know, would even challenge if there is God, um, how much of God is more than a social product. But in all of those, uh, essentially what they're, they're saying is that it's up to you to make the changes and bring about the world, you know, in the image of the kingdom of God. So that's, you know, just like there's a strict determinism that's, I would say, outside the bounds, there is a strict indeterminism that's also mm-hmm. outside the bounds. Mm-hmm. If we're going to look at a more moderate position, um, I think John Wesley is a great example of this, that there is genuine freedom, um, but that freedom is not us having pure human agency. It's still an act of grace. So uh, prevenient grace is this idea that I, I have freedom because the Holy Spirit is giving me freedom to make godly choices. And then I'm partnering with God in, in the transformation, but God is still the one doing the work. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can look at God's control over the future by saying, I think this is where I would disagree with open theism, is it's making the assumption that God is bound by time rather than saying I'm exercising my freedom, but God stands outside of time. And so I, I personally lean a lot more towards Wesley and his understanding of all this. Um, there's others that that would fit that as well. Uh, but on both sides, you know, there is there are some thorny theological things to work through, feel, right. uh, philosophical things to work through. But it all centers around this question of determinism. Mm-hmm. What what kind of agency do I actually have in the world as a human person? Yeah, as I've dug into um, Reformed theology, you know, that classic debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, and at the root of it, you know, because both really start to stray into philosophical speculation, um, but irresistible grace from a soteriological standpoint, talking about salvation, irresistible grace and prevenient grace almost touch in the middle um, from two different angles, you know, in the in an effort to preserve the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, you know, irresistible grace might lean more heavily on the sovereignty of God and prevenient grace on the agency of man, but both um, in an effort to preserve both. Uh, end up almost saying or making similar claims when you when you kind of uh, uh, carve away some of the philosophical speculation. And I think that was helpful for me to realize that um, almost s- similar claims coming from two different angles. Yeah, you can look at, you know, if you were to look at um, not the extremes, but the more moderating positions in the middle, all of them are going to focus heavily on the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in, um, you know, more Reformed, it's going to be the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. Um, and maybe more the Wesleyan, they might focus more on the sanctifying or transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But they, they all kind of mm-hmm. mean very similarly. 
So the emphasis is not on us, but on the Spirit's work in us. And in both cases, we're looking at our response to the Spirit's work as being primary. So there's a lot of common ground there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I would, I would agree... Um, I would agree with that statement. And then lastly, grace. You know, both of them are very much focused on grace. Right. This is not something that in my flesh I am capable of doing. I cannot realize my personhood through my own strength, and my agency has its limits. And even though I'm I'm not a Calvinist, I find Jonathan Edwards to be especially pointed at this point where he's basically saying, you think you have freedom, but in reality, everything you do is already constrained in a lot of ways. You know, you're in the body you're in, in the culture you're in, in the time you're in, with the physical ca- capacity you have, the intellectual capacity you have, um, that the linguistic framework that you operate within. And so what seems like freedom is not total freedom. Even the product of your own past choices, like all of these have put you in this moment today. So when you're making a free decision, it's not as though everything's an option to you, but your options are actually much more narrow than you really think they are. And I, I think that's a great point. And I think it's something that if you are... Um, a little more focused on the free will of humanity. You have to grapple with that and recognize that. And I think what it comes down to is that it's got to be an act of grace. It's got to be the Spirit's work. But there is a question of, do I genuinely respond to God in some way out of my own free will that's not determined in advance, or am I following a script that's already been laid out? So I opt for the for the former, um, but I, I, there's a lot of people I respect who opt for the latter. And I think on either side, like I said, you're going to have to do some hard work to really see that all the way through. Right. I think for the vast majority of people, if you're not called to be a philosopher or a professional theologian, I think that's enough. And I would encourage you, don't get too stuck there. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, what I would say is it's the middle is where you want to live on one side or the other. And the danger is in the extremes of either camp. And so I have a lot more in common with somebody who is a moderate reformed, who focuses on the Spirit's work and the call of grace than I would with somebody who's a process theologian or, you know, one of the extremes, and and I think that's an important important balance. And real quick, just one or two sentences on process theology. Just I don't think we've explained or defined <laughs> that before. I don't know that that's um, able to do a a one or two sentence. Um, essentially, in this one, without getting into all the metaphysical underpinnings, which are very heady, um, Whitehead, um, Alfred Lord Wright, um, Whitehead. Uh, I got his name wrong. Yeah, Whitehead is the one who who comes up with it. And there's he got into theology, but several theologians took it. Essentially, in this one is everything's indetermined, um, and so there's nothing that's set out, and what God is doing is he is exerting influence at every level all the time to everyone, and we respond to God, or we don't, but God actually doesn't have power to bring about change. And so what God does is bring about influence. If we respond to the call of God, he's like kind of transforming us through his influence from within, where we gradually kind of get in his flow, or we resist his flow, but he's not able to bring about any type of change in the world. So the future is open, and I think why a lot of people are drawn to it is because God doesn't have power. He's a fellow sufferer. So you'll you'll hear people refer to that a lot, you know, kind of God is in a way almost a victim. He's suffering with us, but he can't really bring about any kind of change. Now, from a Christian perspective, it's almost impossible to account for the incarnation of Jesus actually being the Son of God in the flesh. Um, you know, so many elements of Christian doctrine get lost in the end, and there's no control over the future, and so there's no guarantee that God wins in the end. And so I, I think I, I would make the argument that process theology is so far out from traditional Christian doctrine yeah. that um, it's probably not worth even going into in, in much depth. But right. you know, you will you will see that. I mean, there's op-eds and even in Waco's paper sometimes that are clearly written by a process theologian. And what's funny about it is like, you'll almost never hear it in a pulpit because, you know, that's not basic Christian doctrine. More an academic. Yeah. If you're in an academic setting, it has a lot more influence than it should based on the number of people who actually Mm -hmm. believe it, Mm -hmm. um, which is a personal annoying feature uh, (laughs) for me. But yeah, in normal life, you won't run into it. Okay. All right. So embodiment, determinism, these are big themes when you talk about personhood, when you talk about social construction. Yeah, this is something we've hit at length throughout this podcast. So we'll try to go a little faster here. The question is, to what extent is reality a social product? And and what are the definitions of that? You know, how, how far does that go? Does mm-hmm. God, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of the world, you know, and to what extent? What I think is a fairly common um, awareness for most people, Christian or secular, is that everything is mediated by language and culture, or most everything is mediated by language and culture. 
uh, you you I'd have like Wittgenstein um, on one end where it's literally everything. On the other end, you you may have Michael Polanyi, who I've referenced before, where he does assume some type of referent to the real world. So our language does have a referent, but very, very much qualified, um, not in the sense that I can just see the world and understand it as is. You know, and if you kind of look at these two positions, I'll take a word like common sense. So you have a lot of people that would just appeal to common sense. The question or the challenge of common sense is that different cultures have different understandings of common sense. Mm -hmm. And so I can't really appeal to common sense because I don't know to what extent common sense is a social creation or is real. And, you know, maybe you could do some kind of meta-analysis and look at all the cultures in human history to see, do they all say the same things? And there could be some kind of universal common sense. But I would imagine that on almost every point that I would consider to be common sense, there has been some human group or culture that had a different understanding of the world that they considered to be common sense. Mm -hmm. So even common sense, in a lot of ways, is a social product. Now, Thomas Reed, um, the Scottish philosopher or others, you know, they, they develop a bit more, you know, where they focus on the concrete reality of the world. And, and so I don't want to press that point too far, other than to say um, the world, I, I think everyone could agree, most of what we know is mediated um, through culture, through language, or through something else. And then the question is, how far does that go? Like, is everything relative? Do we have any kind of knowledge beyond that? Now, this is one where the Christian perspective and the secular perspective start to diverge a bit more. Um, I, I would say most Christians would argue for some form uh, of reference outside of our social creation, namely that's God. But even then, how we how we can discover that is a significant question. So I can acknowledge the reality of God outside of culture, but how do I know God outside of culture? And so, you know, this might hurt your brain a little bit, but all the words I use to describe God are words that originated in culture, mm -hmm. you know? And so... God did not come and give us a language. I mean, I can speak in tongues, but I don't know what it means. So God did not come and give me a language apart from my English language that has, you know, all those words have associated meaning with right. concepts and they were created by other humans. So even if my ability to talk about God requires some type of social product. So how do we know God through that? Now, if you're in the secular world, uh, you're you're even worse off because you don't have something that you can point to outside of yourself. You can make an argument for reference in the real world. I would say the vast majority of especially philosophers today would argue against that. You know, this is where uh, I chuckle a little bit at Stephen Hawking's you know quip at the beginning that you said because I think a, a philosopher would staunchly argue with him and it'd be on this point of whatever it is that he has within himself to make a statement like that that is not a purely scientific statement, it's conjecture, and that conjecture is a social product based on assumptions that he has. And so how do you do that? Um, two dominant approaches in philosophy are analytical philosophy and continental philosophy. So you know, these days it's branched off the geographic associations, but you know, roughly uh, you know, US and British or you know, English-inspired <coughs> schools of philosophy tend to be more analytical. Um, continental is continental Europe. And analytical philosophy focuses on language and the grammar of a language game. What this means, and this gets <laughs> complex, but what this means is we can't know the world as it is, <coughs> so we can't study the world as it is, but what we can do is study the language that we use to talk mm -hmm. about the world. So science has a vocabulary and a grammar to it, and that language, the language of science, we're not talking about like the language of English, but the language of science is coherent and logical. So it has or rules mathematics, yeah. or mathematics or anything else. Yeah. And so if I, as long as I am careful in following the logic of the language or the language game, I can make coherent statements. And I don't know ultimately if those statements fit <laughs> the reality of the world, but at least it's a coherent language mm -hmm. game. Mm -hmm. So you can police language even if you can't make the claim that this defines reality. So that's the world of analytic philosophy. Typically what you do is you would start with a statement about something at a very micro level and analyze it and then kind of work your way out um, and go from there. Continental philosophy focuses on phenomenology. And phenomenology is the study of experience. So the study of language versus the study of human experience. And what is real is what people experience. And what people experience is the result of you know systems, reality. A lot of the focus here would be even language itself is a social product and it serves some people and oppresses other people. 
And so it's not even focused on analyzing anything. They would be skeptical of any kind of analytical work like that. Instead, what they're looking at is the lived experience of people. And they're analyzing systems to see, are these leading to liberation for people or are they leading to oppression? And they're, they're really looking at the outcome and the lived experience of real people. Um, they would look at almost anything and be skeptical about it serving some kind of political end where there are winners and losers. Okay, so that's just very broad overview of um, how this gets played out. Now, in Christian theology, it is largely accepted that much of what we know is from other people about God. And, you know, you can look at the role of testimony, even the role of scripture, you know, it's filtered to us through people and through culture. So what it raises is how can I, as a person, know God in some kind of definitive way? And what I would say is that I cannot know God nor ultimate reality based on my faculties. So me left to myself cannot know a transcendent God. So that option is off the table for me. So if that's the case, how do I know God? There are people uh, historically um, who would make the claim that through natural theology, you could know God mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, that you could kind of work your way up to some kind of knowledge of God. But that's a hard claim in modern theology to sustain um, the last 200 years. Um, that's become very difficult to sustain. You have to work pretty hard. Now, uh, the option that I do believe is that is, uh, you know, open to us within all of this is that I cannot know God in my own capacities, but God can reveal himself to us in a way that I can understand. So it's a shift in focus. You could look at Karl Barth, many others. I'd even say Aquinas, you know, a lot of these great Christian theologians, they all center in on this point mm -hmm. that if it's focusing on me, then I can't know God. And what God will eventually become is a projection of what I want God to be. But if we shift our focus on God, who reveals himself to us, then we can know God. But even that raises a whole host of questions of how. How do I know God? Um, how, as a finite human person, am I capable of knowing God? And really, this comes down to revelation. Rather than get stuck here, um, this is a lot of the focus on my academic work, so I'm happy to talk to people about it. But my, uh, you know, my proposal would be personal divine action. And that would include speech, but a host of other things. It's the mission of the Son and the mission of the Holy Spirit that confront us externally through the incarnation, miracles, all kinds of stuff, and internally through transformation that make it possible for us to know God because of the work of God, not because of something that we have in and of ourselves. We respond to that work, but we can't know God in our own strength. So the the workings out of this question have like what does it mean to be human what is <clears throat> what does it mean to be a person touch just about every aspect of our lives and uh and again to connect this back to our last series you know we could go down from talking about teleology what is our purpose you know from a secular viewpoint is our purpose fully um just subjective where we chart our own course and uh, we've argued in the West right now, our telos, our purpose is probably self-actualization, self-discovery, self-promotion, self-preservation, um, or are we connected to some larger meaning outside of ourselves? And that's a key you know, way to look at this is like, are we looking from the inside out or is there an outside in something objective that defines my reality? We can look at ethics and morality. So is... Is our ethic, is our morality, again, just fully subjective, not tethered to something objective outside the self? And so we have some sort of socially constructed ethic or morality, you know, social contract, something that works for the preservation of society and so on and so forth. Um, or is there some kind of universal? And, you know, the, the rebuttal here would be even within Christian circles, if there is a universal ethic or morality, why are, is there disagreement even yeah, among how Christians? Do we know it? Yeah. How do we how do we discern it? You know, we have this ancient Near Eastern document that is complex and difficult to interpret, and seems to make juxtaposed statements at times. And so, how do we arbitrate between that uh, and so on and so forth? What does it mean to be an embodied uh, person? What is the role of our bodies? And you already talked about it, but I think probably the place that this touches our lived realities most right now in the West is when it comes to our sexuality. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be male and female, uh, and so on? It does our body have a deeper purpose than just functionality? Uh, does it just again kind of cart around our soul and our brains, or is there a deeper theological 
truth to the body that um, that is tethered again to something external to ourselves. So um, you, you listed out a few questions here, follow up, and these are the types of things that we're going to be exploring as we continue on in this uh, series. Can we change? You know, this is a deterministic question. Yeah. What is the role of formation, spiritual formation? How how can we change? Is the fact that I come from a line of alcoholics, does that determine my future and so on and so forth? Uh, what is our purpose as humans? How do we receive our identity? What does it mean to be human? Again, made in the image of God. What does that mean for me as an, in, an individual? And uh, how can we understand ourselves? How can we gain a deeper knowledge of who I am uniquely and, uh, and as a human? So, Drew, why don't you wrap us up with a couple of thoughts? Yeah, let me, let me wrap up with a proposal for how I would understand personhood. And we'll break this down in future episodes. I would say human personhood originates in the word of the Father as an analogy of divine personhood. We are derived from God, who is one God in three persons. Human personhood is marred by sin fully. And so I cannot realize my personhood apart from something happening to restore me. But human personhood is fully capable of restoration in the work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The very same word from whom we originated in the first place is the very same word that was embodied himself to give us access to become a new humanity. Our personhood is actualized by the Holy Spirit, who continually renews and transforms us into the image of Christ. So it is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Both of them are what enable us to become persons or restored into becoming persons. And then finally, personhood is realized in our relationships in the world with other human persons. And so there's something about my relationships that enable me to be persons. And so the upshot of this definition is all person, all humans are persons because all humans are created in the image of God. So even people with cognitive, bodily, linguistic, relational capabilities that, that they're not able to do what we would think of a human being able to do, they are nonetheless persons because of the very word of God by which they were created. All humans only become persons in the full sense of that word through the new humanity that is in Christ. So we're stuck in an old form of personhood that is decaying apart from the new humanity that is in Christ. So if it's not for Jesus, we can't walk in the fullness of our personhood. All human persons require communion with the divine persons by the Holy Spirit in order to transform into their full personhood. So if the Holy Spirit is not renewing me, transforming me, empowering me, then I'm not able to see the fullness of my personhood in this life. And lastly, human persons must be developed through relationship with other human persons. So yes, there is this deep work that God does in me, but it's meant to be lived out alongside of others. That's enough for today. I know it's a lot. And if you made it to the end of this episode, kudos. This is a you long just got one. a degree. We need to like <laughs> give you a certificate in the mail. Um, but we'll, we'll break it down from here in future episodes. Yeah. Thanks for uh, tuning in. And we will continue to unpack personhood theory over the coming weeks. And uh, we will catch you next time on Ideology. Mm-hmm.